In this episode, I'm once again joined by Henry Shukman, award-winning poet, Zen teacher, and author of One Blade of Grass, a Zen memoir. In this interview, Henry discusses the dangers of early spiritual openings, reflects on personality changes after awakening, and questions the complexifying of enlightenment in such activities as the yogas of dream and sleep. Henry also shares his own journey in rediscovering the power of community as crucible, how to navigate religious trauma, and offers his thoughts on a viable formula for Zen in America. So without further ado, Henry Shukman. Henry Shukman, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me back, Steve. It's an honor and delight. This is our third interview. In the first interview, we covered quite a bit of your biography and both in terms of uh, your career as a writer and as an award-winning poet, but also your spiritual journey through a series of awakenings with all of the implications that and consequences of those awakenings. And in our second conversation, we talked really about trauma and about the interaction between trauma and awakening, dealing with such questions as, is it possible to be enlightened and traumatized at the same time? And that's actually a theme trauma and resolving trauma uh, that you discuss along with all your awakening experiences uh, and your spiritual path in your book one blade of grass a zen memoir uh, something i recommend everybody uh, to read rick hansen's one of rick hansen's top recommends apparently so i think i mentioned to you before and uh this time there's a section in your book towards the end uh, which you call, so what's it all been about? And you list several points there by way of, I suppose, summary or final reflection or conclusion uh, that you've drawn from your journey. And I think some of these themes are very interesting indeed. And some of them we've covered in previous episodes, so we'll pass over those. But uh, there are others there which uh, I was very interested to ask you about. So perhaps I'll read uh, from that section. And then um, I can quiz you a little on, on some of the points. Sounds good. So it's this section at the end of, uh, towards the end of uh, One Blade of Grass, a Zen memoir. And it starts, first, maybe Peter Matheson was right about early openings. They can cause trouble. If a seed germinates and splits open, it had better have loam waiting for it. Second, some of us are going to need other kinds of help along with meditation, dream therapy, cognitive therapy, somatic work, yoga, whatever it may be. The more the different approaches understand and respect one another, the better. Third, one common misunderstanding of meditation in the West is that it's an individual undertaking. I fell for that and fell foul of it. In fact, it's collaborative and relational, at least if you want to make real progress. Fourth, while for some it may be helpful to find a live-in community that has adopted the customs, festivals, clothing, eating styles, and calendars of non-Western cultures, for many, that's not what we need. There's no inherent incompatibility between Western culture and meditation practice. The core teachings need not be presented as exotic, since they aren't. They're about the human mind, heart, and body. Fifth, my teachers have not been Deepak Chopra's, or Eckhart Tolle's, that is, spiritual voices who stand alone, apart from any lineage, for whom the establishment of formidable commercial empires has been part of the mission. 
Much as I personally appreciate those popular public teachers and their books, I'm grateful my own teachers aren't like that. I was a lone wolf too long myself, snarling with distrust. That was part of the very problem. Sixth, there is a process a human being can go through that results in an extinguishing of certain aspects of ordinary consciousness and leads to what is traditionally called prajna wisdom in Buddhism. Wisdom that's supreme, or in another translation, before knowing. In other words, a wisdom that's not knowledge, but rather a state of being. That wisdom should be something different from knowledge makes sense, since in this process knowledge is revealed as one of the very screens obscuring what the training uncovers. Seventh, since that moment, life has been different. More peace, love, joy. More grief too, when appropriate, which I take to be healthy. I don't want to sound beatific or saccharine, but for sure there are still bouts of anxiety and irritation, but they're much rarer and briefer and bite less deeply. Lastly, my assumption all through training was that Zen does specifically address the kind of experience I'd had at 19 on the beach. That was both true and not true. So those are the seven points uh, in a digest form. I've extracted the quotes a little bit. And for more, of course, listener can consult One Blade of Grass. The first one, you write that Peter Matheson was right about early openings, that they can cause trouble. And if a seed germinates and splits open, it better have loam waiting for it. I'm wondering if you could unpack the metaphor. Uh, what do you mean by seed, germination, splitting open and the loam? And can you also expand a little on your reference to Matheson's statement that early openings can cause trouble? Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me see. Well, I'll start with that first. And I, because it ties into the metaphor of the seed opening. So in terms of um, the metaphor of, this, of an opening and of the seed sort of thing, well, actually I'd read something by Peter Matheson where he said that um, to have an early opening in uh, meditative training wasn't necessarily a good thing. And by opening, he meant, um, I suppose, you know, broadly speaking, we might say like an opening to the non-dual or something like that. Like, a, 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 um, you know, a sudden sort of breakthrough experience where the sense of self as a separate, or me as a separate, you know, item in the universe, separate from everything else, seems to have, you know, suddenly, usually it is sudden, by the way, been switched off or been uprooted or been seen through so that we kind of recognize that the way we've understood what we've understood ourselves to be all along as a real sort of core nugget of something separate from everything else has been um well it hasn't been what it seemed to be i mean that the sense of that has been kind of merely a set of processes which we understood in a certain way that made us feel like we were you know a separate item and in the universe kind of thing and an opening would be seeing through that or a moment when that's in abeyance and we discover a sense of um of um kind of you know i don't know universal belonging or universal participation or sort of sense that you know we're not separate from the rest of the world is is you know what you know it's what is known in zen as kensho which translates as seeing original nature and you know in other traditions it has other names but it seems to be a 
you know, widely recognized experience across traditions. And he was, whatever I'd read that in, I think it was an article by Peter Matheson, you know, he had referenced something like that as an opening, you know, and saying that, you know, of course, in a way that that's so valuable because we catch a glimpse of a really different way of construing reality, which I think, you know, even if that new way of construing reality, even if it's no more valid than the old way, it would already be valuable to realize that our ordinary way of construing things is only one possible way, that there are indeed others. That alone is valuable. But in fact, it seems common that when we have that kind of quote unquote opening, we sense that we're seeing something real, that it's not just um, <clears throat> some other arbitrary way of perceiving. It's actually, there's something about it which it always seems to impress us as real. And that we're, you know, it's it's not delusional. It's uh, it's it's uh, it's um it is indeed, you know, in some ways. I mean, it almost you know tends to feel like it's kind of more real than our habituated way of perceiving. So therefore, you'd think, why wouldn't having one of these sort of quote unquote openings be a good thing? And he was saying. <clears throat> damn, I don't want to misquote him, but I think he was saying something along the lines of, it's not necessarily helpful to have an opening when you haven't yet established a steady practice. And he meant meditation practice because, and because that practice can provide a nourishing context for such an opening. And if you don't have a context like that, it may be troublesome, it may be destabilizing, it may be, you know, unsettling, and it may, it may even be something that we're then inclined to kind of push against or not want to know more of, or, you know, and we may, we may even come to conceive of it as, you know, as a difficulty and a problem and a negative thing. You know, whereas if we already had a, 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 a kind of a supportive context in which an experience like that is kind of understood and um, is not regarded as something outlandish, fearsome, you know, then having an experience like that in that right kind of context could be a marvelously helpful thing as we develop and grow and expand our horizons kind of thing as human beings. So I think he sort of meant it like that. So just coming back to the seed, I mean, the analogy would be that um, I, I mean, I tend to think these days that this sense of self um, is a kind of seed that it contains it's sort of in, in it's kind of intrinsically unstable or something, you know, David Loy says, um, the, the self is always anxious. It's intrinsically anxious because it's not quite sure it really exists. That's what he says, I, you know, but maybe we, I mean, we, uh, you know, in the Buddhist view, I think it's, it's 
regarded as kind of key to our suffering you know it's like a um it it's likely to cause suffering because you know it 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 because it very because it's very nature is to feel separate um therefore it sort of has to you know navigate its way through the world you know trying to attract and go closer to all the things it thinks will help it feel secure and it has to push away and move away from all the things that seem to threaten its security or well-being and that is a uh you know is a, is an intrinsically uh challenging and sort of difficult state of affairs to live in in a world that's you know got things you want but is also threatening and um that you know you've got to always be trying to get the good stuff and trying to avoid the bad stuff well it's so different i mean it's a different world if um we have a quote-unquote opening and discover another sort of way of experiencing things where we're, we're actually um you know so thoroughly embedded in this world so so much part of it that we we can actually um experience this sense of non-duality that we're not separate i mean inseparability as dogen called it um and so on the for the seed if the self is a seed you know what a seed has to do when the time is right is break open and then the you know the, the little sprouts shoots can come out and so on it can it germinates and then it breaks and and um actually i mean the the new testament actually has a really nice analogy for this um in uh i don't know it well enough but somewhere i know it's in the new testament it says it says if in, unless uh in the old testament in the older language i think of uh probably the king james bible if, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die it abideth alone but if it fall and die it bringeth forth much fruit or something like that you know the seed if it falls into the ground into the soil it can break open and and die it ceases to be a seed but this beautiful thing grows out of it and i think you know that's a i assume i don't really know but i assume that it could be taken analogously in in the in the in that christian context for you know in in say buddhist or other contemplative context where you know there's the if this sense of self um is put in a practice context where you know things get steady enough and kind of safe enough and there's community and there's guidance and there's generally a kind of um you know some sort of um wisdom that's come down through the practice that's present then the self can break open like the seed and you know show us a sort of much greater um kind of self that's that includes everything so that's that's kind of unpacking that have i have i done enough on that or is that yeah any questions out of what i've just been saying steve that i need to clarify well yeah it's very fascinating what you're saying 
I'm wondering what happens to the self if the self, as David Loy was, uh, as, as you mentioned, David Loy says, is always anxious because it's not quite sure it exists. What happens to it after enlightenment or opening or awakening or however we want to say that? Um, yeah. are it, is, is that uh, insecurity somehow resolved? Or have you, it sounds like you, you're almost saying that one graduates to a, a larger self that doesn't have that insecurity somehow. Um, and if not, why not? Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder whether it could be kind of, in a sense, all the above. But, but on the last point, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it, if we have, um, if we've become porous enough, perhaps you could say, to, to be able to sense this broader participation in existence kind of thing, that we're not shuttered in all the time by our sense of ending with the skin bag, you know, being contained by this body and everything outside this body has nothing to do with me. Um, or at least it's, it's separate from my core identity. If we've, if we've got a more flexible, perhaps more porous sense of identity that has tasted um, being um, one whole existence that, um, damn, I'm, I don't know if I'm saying this very clearly, but if, we, if we've tasted that, and then in time, if we become able to sort of, you know, tap into that uh, almost at will, it definitely reduces anxiety associated with feeling separate because, you know, we've only got to just get this little, little, a tiny little hit. Oh yeah, that again, that I'm not alone, that in fact, I'm, I'm just in, inextricably part of this whole existence going on. And so, I mean, it's here and now it's not, it's not, you know, um, something that happened in the past. It's not something I might get to in the future. It's something present here and now that our very consciousness is in fact, you know, much wider than we normally take it to be. And it's, it's to tune into that, to open to that, to sense that, it, it automatically brings an incredible sense of support, of belonging, of um, sort of warm love almost, sort of all around and, and all through us. And I mean, I think whenever somebody, I mean, this is, there's a distinction, I guess, that I make in the book and I need to bring up here, I think, and I think you're already ahead of me on this. <laughs> you already sort of alluded to it really between having an experience like a, you know, usually rather brief, powerful experience of this kind, and it may leave a long afterglow but somehow it's a, it's a moment of seeing through, of seeing more clearly, and it often tends to fade, um, but we've seen something different. We've seen another way of experiencing, and that's, that changes our frame of reference because we've seen it. 
that's one thing. And then another thing is actually, is it possible to, uh, you know, sort of tip over, as it were, and more consistently reside in that much broader experience of things where we're not so separate, not an isolated separate entity. And, you know, the, 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 the promise of most of these deep contemplative wisdom traditions is that precisely that second thing is possible. And so if that's happened to somebody, if the, I mean, you know, first of all, I think you, you were asking like, so what happens to the self if to the, you know, the old self, you know, if one is open to this sort of bigger sense of self and on a consistent basis. And I would say we've got to, first of all, acknowledge that number one, there can be kind of pivot points in a lifetime where things do tip. And so that that's not just glimpses or, you know, uh, sudden awakening moments, but actually things can really turn a corner, they can get over a brow. And we really can be more consistently open to this stuff. And it's incredibly beautiful to have that happen. And it just brings a whole lot of gratitude and and, uh, and it tends to soften our hearts a lot. And, and so we feel more compassion more consistently. And, and we become, I think, generally speaking, it's, it's fair to say people will typically become less reactive, meaning less inclined to jump into, you know, strong emotional reactions of whether of, you know, fear or anxiety or of irritation and annoyance. Um, uh, which may be the two most common ways we react, um, that, you know, those reactions get softened too and maybe maybe can still happen now and then, but be less intense, not last as long and be less frequent. And so we sort of recover more quickly. There's, you know, the boat rights itself more quickly. Um, and we remember, oh yeah, yeah, this is ah, yeah, this is it. It's it's beautiful, and it's I'm I and uh, and the suffering, and my concern is with the suffering of the world, and what can I do to help it? And you know, um, so I believe that that's uh, very realistic. But does it mean that the old sort of the old sense of self is kind of annihilated or something? I think you'd get different answers from different spiritual teachers on this point. One might be, um, some might say, for example, that, well, no, it doesn't have to be eradicated. It's more that, you know, things have expanded. So uh, it can still arise, but it's included in a larger sense of one's existence. So it doesn't have to be, there's no need to eliminate it because something bigger is, 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 is developing or has developed presumably can develop much further always, but it's, it's developed at least enough that there's room for the old sense of self to do whatever it wants. And, and it's freely sort of contained by a larger context, therefore has less power over us, but sure, it's welcome, no problem. That would be one point of view. I think another point of view would be it's killed, it's killed. You know, <laughs> some people talk in that kind of language kill the self and and yeah my my guru killed me you know and 
and um and maybe that's true for them and that old self is just gone um i can i can certainly believe that i have no reason to doubt that um and another another odd more perhaps more sort of odd possibility which i think is actually one revered in the zen tradition is that this whole business of awakening of quote-unquote enlightenment if we go far enough down the path we actually go beyond it we can forget all about enlightenment and awakening they just become an old story and what so thereafter we're just leading completely ordinary life completely ordinary and see so then you, one might ask well what's the difference between you know before all this enlightenment business and after it if you can really go beyond it and on one level they, they might say well no difference but on another level there's surely something there's surely something or it wouldn't be worth it and um it seems that uh we can live a very uh, I, I mean i'm speaking not that I, I don't claim to have got anywhere near any of this by the way but um it seems or maybe tastes you know but it seems like being able to just live in the most plain and ordinary way and be kind of no possibility of dissatisfaction that it's all just fine as it unfolds and there really is no longer um some sort of you know strident wishing things be otherwise and you see this in some stories of these old masters who you know ended up living um very very simply usually in great poverty actually but they sort of didn't mind at all hanging out with the village kids playing games with them you know offering the shirt off their back if somebody needed it so not ordinary i guess in the way like how we might ordinarily live um prior to training but ordinary in the sense that there's sort of nothing outwardly remarkable <clears throat> or remarkable about them they say in zen that as long as there's kind of some sort of shine or sheen of enlightenment on a person they're, they're they're not they're not ready yet they're not done that sheen has to wear off and they become so ordinary nobody would ever it never cross anybody's minds they might be enlightened whatever that may be yeah that's the good stuff there henry <laughs> good as me <sighs> One of the areas in which many traditions point to uh, in regards to this, some of the themes you're bringing up here in terms of the self and the experience of the self and so on, is sleep, sleep and dreaming. And of course, as you know, the process of falling asleep in cert certain traditions, I'm thinking, for example, of the Tibetan tradition, can be seen almost as a sort of rehearsal for death it's, uh, of the conventional kind. I'm wondering. Uh, and also, may I, uh, perhaps I'll say, in uh, certain traditions, one of the 
consequences or possible consequences of uh, an unfolding enlightenment or whatever we'd say is a change in uh, the experience of sleep. For example, the Dalai Lama has said that one of the greatest uh, yogic feats, if you like, is to remain aware throughout the entire an entire night of sleep, uh, during which time, presumably, conventional consciousness um, is switched off, or at least, uh, at least, well, that would be my experience anyway. <laughs> I just sort of wake up the next day. So I'm wondering if you, um, I know you've done lots of Jungian dream work, which of course is perhaps not, not really um, emphasizing those themes. But I'm wondering if you've noticed uh, any changes along those lines in sleep, or if you have any comments on sleep uh, related to the themes you've you've just been bringing up. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for bringing that up. I I know that um <clears throat> I think in in sort of Vedic context there's a there's a thing about learning to be aware even in deep sleep. I believe, um, you know, Zen just doesn't emphasize this at all. And although I've I have trained in other contexts as well. I've never, I've never been in one where you know it was like lucid dreaming was was uh, encouraged or, or um or indeed, um, having awareness remain throughout sleep be a kind of yardstick of one's awakening. I, I just haven't been in a context that talked like that. Um, I can sort of imagine it a little bit. I mean, there've been times, phases in my own path when I did seem to kind of be able to be softly, beautifully aware, kind of a, lo a lovely kind of glow of awareness. It seemed, you know, while sleeping and yet, no, I was sleeping. Um, but uh, I, I don't, I don't feel that these days. It was, there was some, I remember there was maybe, you know, two or three sort of phases in my past so far when it was like that. But it's not something that I, I can really speak to. I, I remember there's one old Japanese master in our lineage who had sort of had some kind of flashes of awakening, but he was still troubled and not at ease and, and still afraid of dying, actually. And and then he went and trained with some other master who led him through, in fact, through a koan training. And in the course of that, he had a very deep awakening. And his one of his comments was about it was, you know, now at last I could just fall asleep with a great snore. <laughs> it was he was trying to, you know, express how simple life had become now. Simple and untroubled. I think there's a tendency for us in the West to be, if we're interested at all in, in this business of awakening and enlightenment, um, you know, we're kind of, we, 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 it's easy to get, you know, very interested in it if you, if you start going down that road and, and, and understandably, because, you know, we can come to experience things in very different ways that are, that are so um, really involve such a change of heart that it's it's a it's a beautiful thing and it's a, it is a wonderful thing that we can go through this and it's fantastic i think that traditions that have known about this are so much more um present and accessible these days in the west i think it's quite fantastic 
But nevertheless, um, the, the conversation often uh, you know, in the West these days, I think about these matters tends to be around um, sort of a, in a sort of a sudden awakenings and more stable long-term awakening and you know what is enlightenment and and you know what what about oneness uh, everything being one and what about emptiness everything being gone and you know it's all understandably quite fascinating to those of us who are interested in this stuff but actually in zen terms those matters i mean what i was just talking about would count as the third and the fourth of the ox herding pictures. And the ox herding pictures are a kind of map of spiritual training that go from number one to number 10 without getting into it in too much detail. Just, you know, the third and fourth pictures are about sort of seeing the ox, catching a glimpse of it. And the ox is a, seems to be a sort of metaphor for the awakening, enlightenment experience, you know, seeing a glimpse of the fact that all on some level all is one or all is empty and that implicates us too and seeing that and then um the fourth ox herding picture is state seeing it stably having it become a stable consistent experience and that but actually you know that's picture number four even that is just number four and there are ten so what happens in five six seven eight nine and ten basically we 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 integrate it uh, where it's become second nature and then we forget about it and live, live an ordinary life and the the tenth picture is returning to the marketplace with gift bestowing hands meaning just coming back to totally you know ordinary life um, but with more of a hopefully sort of natural tendency to be trying to offer something and be of service and be of help, you know, rather than be still caught in the business of self-protection and self-promotion, as some put it. Or self-liberation. <laughs> yeah, or indeed that, exactly, exactly. Thank you, well put, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Perhaps we could move on to some of your other points in that list. The second one, of course, is to do with therapy and uh, somatic work and trauma work and so on and so forth. And I think we've covered that quite thoroughly in the previous episode. So unless there's anything to add to that, perhaps we'll continue to the third point. You know, Steve, there's one thing that I wasn't sure that I said, which is that in, in our last conversation was that um, how helpful one of these opening experiences can be for trauma. There's some research um, that suggests you know, this, some kind of non-dual experience can leave a kind of beneficent shadow that's sort of analogous, but opposite in a sense to PTSD. It can actually leave a kind of post-bliss, well, maybe that's not the right word, but post-unitariness, um, not stress disorder, but, but, you know, blessed condition, like, if you see what I mean, like analogous to how a traumatic event can leave PTSD, one of these unitary awakenings of finding that we're part of everything. It's so, 
it's so healing, you know, to the heart to taste that, that even if it's momentary, it can still leave a long aftermath of sort of blessedness. And that can, there's some research that has explored whether that can help people with PTSD. And the conclusion is yes, it can. So I can't remember mentioning that last time. So I wanted to just put it in here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Your third point is that you write that one common misunderstanding of meditation in the West is that it's an individual undertaking. And then you write, I fell for that and fell foul of it. In fact, it's collaborative and relational, at least if you want to make real progress. Wondering if you could unpack that a little bit. Of course, one imagines the meditator is sitting in seclusion, or at least very least the solitude of, of one's own cushion. Even in meditation retreats that one is, you know, one thinks of meditation retreats often silent. That's a certain style. Uh, yeah. In some retreats, even avoiding eye contact, for example. So even though people are gathered together for presumably for the purposes of logistics, great pains are taken to enforce a kind of solitary uh, aspect to it uh, yeah. in other in other senses. So perhaps you could uh, uh, unpack a little bit there what, what you had in mind when you wrote that point. Yes, yes, thank you. I mean, if I may start actually with the example of a retreat, I mean, I, I absolutely right. Uh, I've known that in almost every retreat I've done that you're encouraged to avoid eye contact and you're there, you know, exactly as you say, because you can get the uh, the food all at the same time cooked for everybody and so on. And, um, and you have this place of seclusion together that, you know, you don't each individually have to set up. But actually, you know, the the point I think also is that by um, avoiding eye contact, avoiding casual interactions and so on, you'd think it's just so that each of us can separately delve deeper into our own meditative absorption or whatever. But I don't think it is really. I think it's to discover a different level of community you know, a communion or community that's going on at another level than our ordinary social selves. And um, by being together um, without having ordinary kinds of interaction, we're sort of undoing our conditioned way of experiencing others and opening up to, you know, a less conditioned or, or not so customarily conditioned way of experiencing others where it's like discovering a kind of subsoil of connection with others that gradually emerges through the course of retreat and many people i've heard you know comment on this that it's not a it's not a rare unusual thing to taste this that we're you know we're really finding a deeper level of belonging with one another so that's one, one sort of level of this non-individuality that I was referencing in that quotation you, you offered. Um, but I think another would be um, that, um, and again, this maybe harks back to the, that little seed needing to germinate in the right loams, quote unquote, is that, um, yeah, we, um, 
we have a lot of learning to do, I think, when we're in a living in community or um, immersed in a certain kind of community for an intense, uh, during an intense period like a retreat, that we, um, we, um, the, there's a, there's a, there's a metaphor used in Zen actually, whereby they describe how, you know, river rocks by being rolled along against one another down the stream become round and smooth that so we as uh, tend to be sort of sharp cornered individuals and when we get into a communal practice context these sort of sharp edges get smoothed down and worn down and we become more harmonious um, and more open to creating harmonious community um, but, you know, even on another level, um, part of the sort of anti-individualist, perhaps, workings of something like Zen training is that, you know, we, we have a guide. We have some kind of um, uh, acceptance of a guide as, as some element in our practice journey. And, you know, meaning a teacher, but it doesn't have to be i mean what that looks like can vary greatly it could be somebody you know we see once a year or it could be somebody we see once a week um but we are receiving some kind of um guidance and it makes a huge difference just to have that in our life at all it it um it changes the whole thing from being, you know, about sort of me and the world or me and the universe or something. So, well, yeah, that's in there still, but it's also about me and other human beings. And to find that there, I mean, if, if you're in one of these deep practice traditions, you find that there's, there's this kind of community almost sort of across time of people who who've really sort of set aside their, their lives or at least parts of their lives to devote time and energy to this practice and what it can lead to. So they valued it that highly that they did that. And to realize that, you know, this has been going on over centuries, over millennia, and that, you know, we can sort of, you know, in some sense, uh, uh, join that you know it's it's kind of wonderful to find that you know there are these um yeah these sort of communities across time or something that have been devoted to uncovering kind of treasures in the in the human in human nature or something you know i don't know that it seems to me there's something i find it kind of almost a bit moving that that we can you know, that it's really, it is about us, us humans. It's not, it's not a, just about, you know, me and the great universe, you know, it's, it is about um, human relationship. And again, I believe this varies among traditions, how this is emphasized or not. And in Zen, there is some emphasis on, on it in a particular kind of way where you meet with a teacher and, um, 
Um, I know I, I was blown away. I mean, I said that I fell foul of the lone wolf thing because, because I, you know, for many years, I, having had a, you know, one of these early openings, quote unquote, I, and then picking, picking up meditation, I, I kind of didn't really get how much I sort of would have benefited earlier if I'd known from being part of uh, some kind of practice community. I just didn't want it at all. I didn't want a teacher either. I just thought it was all down to me to figure this stuff out. And I didn't realize that part of figuring it out was figuring out that I needed help. And once I did realize that, it, man, it, it, it all went so much more easily. I think it's a very important thing, the human contact in it. And I think it's very easy for us to overlook that, at least it was for me. Um, I just always saw the spiritual path as like kind of between me and the world kind of thing, you know, uh, making my own way down this track into the mountains, you know, and I, I didn't, it was a long time before I could open to just how, how wonderful it was to actually be able to connect with somebody else about this kind of stuff. And it changed everything. Many of my guests, I've, I've noticed um, when I ask them about their background, uh, they become, say, uh, Zen uh, priests or uh, Zen professionals or Zen teachers, I guess, or uh, Buddhist teachers of some other stripe. Many of them grew up in other religious contexts, typically in America. Uh, it would be a, some sort of Christian context, typically. And the experience of religion and religious community and religious institution and religious leaders was the very barrier to the quite profound contemplative potential of the Christian path, let's say, the Christian uh, you know, toolkit. <laughs> and so in search of that contemplative dimension, became interested in Zen, became interested in Tibetan practice or something like that. How does one avoid or deal with the, oh, excuse me, there's a boat coming by here. That happens occasionally. Lovely. Can you hear it? Yeah, it, it, it's not loud, but actually it just got quieter, I think. Yeah, it's moving past now. Um, <clears throat> So I'm wondering, I suppose, in, in, in religious community and that sort of, you know, it's, it's the ideal you're describing is very nice. The reality can be another matter. Where can that go wrong? If the solo person can go wrong by, in a certain sense, not having the abrasion of others required to smooth the stone, I wonder if that abrasion needs to occur in an overtly religious context or, or can just abrasion with human beings that one encounters be sufficient if, if taken in the right way? Yeah. yeah, so there's some downsides to being solo, it seems. I wonder if there are some downsides to being in community or having a teacher, of course. I mean, it almost goes without saying that most people's experience of, of religious community is uh, negative, or many people's experience of religious community is negative. And many people's experience of religious leaders is or teachers is negative, sufficient enough that I think there's, there's a sort of quite a distrust almost culturally, perhaps, of those sorts of figures. 
So I suppose um, I'm wondering, how does one re-engage uh, in your experience or in the experience of your students? How does one re-engage with the religious community, religious institution, uh, religious teachers and so on, having been, I don't know, burned in the past or having, having seen how it can go wrong? It certainly does go wrong in Buddhist circles. It certainly does go wrong in Zen. American Zen has, has been riddled with the sorts of scandal that one uh, expects to see in religious institutions. It doesn't seem to be any better off. So uh, I suppose I'm playing a bit um, devil's advocate here, but I'm wondering how would you respond to that kind of a, that kind of a view? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I mean, actually, just, for, just a, a little bit of record setting. I think it's not quite true that most Zen teachers and have fallen foul of this. I, I don't think that's accurate. There have been a handful of very conspicuous, disastrous scandals, you know, most noticeably like Baker Roshi in San Francisco Zen Center and um, Sasaki Roshi in Mount Baldy and um, um, Aido Shimano Roshi, who I did a retreat with, by the way, in New York State, you know, they were particularly conspicuous, egregious and grievous examples, um, and, and a few more. But there have been hundreds where there was nothing like that going on as well that people don't hear about because there's no great scandalous story to attract attention, you know. Just, just a small point. And it's also, of course, it's happened with various, uh, you know, Vedic or Hindu gurus and, and, uh, and other Buddhist teachers as well. It's, it's, it is, of course, it's, uh, it's human nature. And that um, the, as there's some research that showed that, if I can get this about right, sort of like, I think it was, it was a sort of along the lines of that, when people, people who get sort of more swiftly promoted in organizations often tend to have um, good, you know, emotional intelligence. They're more sensitive to how others are feeling. They're more compassionate. They're kind of kinder and humbler and they get promoted and because they're liked. And as they reach the higher echelons of the organization, they actually start losing those characteristics. There's something about having more influence, having more power that actually abrades compassion and caring and humility in people. I mean, maybe it's, it, it, seems, it seems plain that that would happen, but it's rather sad if it's true. And I think um, in terms of how to, I mean, I can tell you what I can see as a plausible formula that would work for this, this kind of question is that um, if we're in a community, if we're part of a community that's a lay community, it's not live in, we gather, you know, weekly and a few times a year for retreats, for example, I think the risk dramatically decreases when it's not a residential community. Actually, the risk of, 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 of abuse and misuse of authority and power. That's one thing. Uh, I, I mean, maybe I'm naive about it, but that's, that would seem to me a critical factor. Presumably the potency of the uh, abrasion of the rocks bashing against each other is similarly diluted. Yes, that would be true. Um, but I think actually the point that you were sort of uh, 
kind of almost making, I think, or opening up in your question, can we get that kind of abrasion in other contexts of life? I do think so, yes. I mean, family would be a great example. If we can somehow ride the, the you know, the, the crucible, or re reside in the crucible of family and turn it into something positive, that, that could be as big a learning as, as, as we'll get, I would think, because, you know, family, there's such intense emotion and, you know, it, it, it's, it's so fraught, a little cat's cradle of relationship, family, that it's, it's actually a great practice context, although a challenging one. But if we can navigate with, and it really takes, I think, wisdom and skill and, and um, you know, and a lot of kindness and so on to find a way through with family. But I think if we, if we can, that's a fantastic context as well, you know, and being, you know, work context, they could be very challenging, of course. Um, and again, if we can, if we can find a way to navigate them, you know, without being abused and um, of course, um, we'll grow a lot. And I mean, human relationship is, um, you know, maybe it's, it is the number one crucible of growth, you know? Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that doesn't have to be confined to some kind of religious community. But actually, I also want to just state that I don't, I just, I, I quibble a little bit with the word religious because, um, you know, the way that I do Zen is not very religious. Um, I mean, I don't regard it as about, I mean, I, I'd have to acknowledge it's spiritual, <laughs> meaning, you know, something about our sort of deep nature or something like that, or deep psych growth of the psyche or something. But, but the word religion to me just means something otherworldly, you know, and I don't really regard Zen as otherworldly. Um, and, you know, I don't, we don't have any of the, we have very few of the trappings of a more religious style of Buddhism that you'd find in Asia. You know, yeah, we might have a Buddha statue, but, you know, which you might find in a spa or a yoga studio or something, you know, but we, we, um, we don't do chanting we don't, we don't, uh, I don't know, you know, we, we, we're not as, anyway, maybe that's a sub point, really not a very important point. It's just staying on the question of the abrasion of the individual and in, in a positive kind of way. Um, yeah, I mean, I think life can give us endless opportunities to wear down our sharp corners. It's just that if we're in a practice context, we might more readily recognize those opportunities as opportunities rather than just seeing them as intrusive ob uh, obstructions you know, and obstacles to getting what we want. So if one could expand one's view of one's practice to include uh, one's circumstances of life, then conceivably, at least some of the similar effect. Of course, this is minus the teacher, which was another important point you made. That doesn't seem to be easily replaceable. 
um, one could get that abrasion from the circumstances of one's life. It seems to be that you're saying, perhaps you can correct me, the mistake to avoid is somehow a separation of one's practice from the rest of one's life, an isolation of it. Yes, exactly, exactly. But, and I think, um, I mean, the way we sort of uh, view it in Sambo Zen is that, um, you know, you, you, you do your daily sit, you, we gather as and when is possible, you know, either briefly or for multiple days if it's a retreat, you know, but, but most of the time we're sort of leading our ordinary lives and that is the arena where we want to be uh, practiced to sort of be showing up, you know, and um, I think if I, I, I'm not sure, did I make it clear that point about like, if we are, I mean, the difference between just going through life and going through life, but also having a practice that includes some kind of community that you see now and then, and perhaps a teacher also that you see now and then, the difference is that with those other two pieces of the practice community and the teacher, you can approach your daily life in a different way, and you're more likely to, and you're more likely to, to you know, be able to experience it as an arena of growth and an arena for increasing um, you know, wisdom and kindness and joy. And, um, but it's not that, I mean, I think this is, I'm really still on this, I suppose, discussing this sort of formula that I think is viable for us in the West, in a modern world, where you can still have a teacher, still have a bit of community, but you don't have to uh, put yourself at the mercy of perhaps one man's power trip, you know, because you're basically, you get a little hit of guidance now and then, and you get a little hit of community, practice community now and then, which hopefully will inform how you approach your life in the world with family and friends, with work and so on, that you're not um, being asked to give all that up. Um, far from it, the, the invitation will be just to sort of approach things a little differently, but it's sort of your life and your practice, but you're not alone. You've got a context for practice that's in the background and sometimes briefly, relatively briefly, in the foreground. And that, I think, is a much safer formula where we don't have to be um, you know, so worried really about falling under the spell of some you know, charismatic, psychopathic cult leader or whatever, or abusive teacher. Mm -hmm. I, I, think it's, I think it's viable, I really do. Fascinating. Well, Henry, thank you very much. I know our time today is limited. So uh, thank you very much for all that you've uh, discussed. I would love to ask you in future about the remaining points, particularly your statement that there's no inherent incompatibility between Western culture and meditation practice. I think that's very interesting indeed. And your points about lineage and also this uh, sixth point about prajna, um, that, that, that type of wisdom. I think that would be very interesting to discuss in perhaps a fourth and I don't know, maybe, maybe final, although I, I don't, uh, it's just very interesting. Uh, if you'd be willing to, to return to discuss those, I think that'd be very, very excellent indeed. Well, I'd be, I'd be thrilled. Yes, it's great talking with you. I mean, I hope, I, I feel like you have a lot to offer. And I, I, I know you're the host and I, you, have, you want to you very uh, kindly and humbly want your guests to talk. And, but you've got a lot of wisdom in this arena yourself, Steve. I picked that up. And 
let's do another one by all means if you'd like to but maybe we can veer a little bit more toward conversation i don't know if you'd be comfortable with that i, I understand if not but well that, that's very kind of you i suppose we could road test it we could give it a try it's, it's not a format that we've done i've done here on the podcast uh it's very kind of you i think uh uh there may be more bang for buck in uh the question answer format um but anyway uh, most of and uh, i will say most of my insight is purely speculative <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Henry Shukman, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Steve. Very kind of you to have me on again. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.